I'm just hitting record and then we'll just start when we start. Cool. Uh, do you have anything funny or clever or charming? There's a goddamn U-Haul van outside. Fuck again. <laughs> You're kidding. It's it's gone. It was driving away, but I'm like, are you? Was fucking- it driving away quickly with pieces of your car attached? <laughs> Fucking better not be. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> I love how the world just gave us a great cold open to our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Thanks, world. We are back with a brand new episode of Soon to Be a Major Motion Podcast. I am Billy Beck. I am Cody Beck. And we are talking about books and the movies that were made based on the books. Technically, according to the credits. Somewhat loosely. <laughs> so, somewhat loosely. This is more like the the movie for the the one that we're doing this week is more like a fanfic AU. <laughs> it's like, cool idea for a book. What if I stole it and made it a movie? Like, that's... Yes. That's what we're talking about. And if you didn't read the title of the podcast today, we are talking about... Who censored Roger Rabbit? Oh, good. I read the right one. Well, I I watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Wait, did you re- did you read? Did you watch the wrong one? W- would it surprise you if technically <laughs> <laughs> that's the book that they uh, adapted into the classic Disney film in 1988? It would very much surprise me having read it. <laughs> So let's let's backtrack a little bit and just catch up with our favorite podcast host. Yeah, before before we dive into uh, the Roger Rabbit, um, how have you been since we last spoke? I have food poisoning, probably. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> uh, yeah. So fun fact for all of you out there that are in your early thirties. So there's a symptom of food poisoning called reactive arthritis. And it is exactly what it sounds like, and it's miserable. So you only threw up one time (laughs) and threw your body out for two days. Pretty much, yeah. Welcome to your 30s, my dear. (laughs) I hate it. It is a scam. I would like a freedom from this flesh prison, please. Honey, may I remind you that I woke up... 19 months ago with a crick in my neck and I still can't feel my finger. Oh god, having a body is such a scam. I hate it so much. Well, that aside, what uh what's going on with you? Oh, not not much. Uh the day the last episode came out, I was in Salt Lake City. Uh yeah. technically Provo, Utah for a work trip. Um, Ooh. I will not go into many details about what I do for work for Moral reasons? That makes it sound dark. I like that. (laughs) The Uh, the secret lore. But uh, work flew me out to Provo for three days to meet with one of our dealers. And uh, those Mormons sure know how to make us drunk. I would like to point out (laughs) that you saying you refusing to disclose information about your employer and then describing the people you work with as dealers does not (laughs) give the impression you wanted to give. Mormon dealers. (laughs) It's soda. It's very fancy soda. Who knows what product I'm slinging. 
But no, we started drinking at noon in the airport on Tuesday and stopped at 5 p.m. at a different airport on Thursday. (laughs) And then right back to work like normal on Friday after landing at 10.30 p.m. Woo! Long week. Long week. Uh, But have since recovered. So on to the task at hand. Uh, Roger Rabbit. I feel like we should just call it Roger Rabbit. That's probably easier. Um, if we're specifically referring to one or the other, we'll use the full title. But as a, I hate I hate the term IP. <laughs> but as a story concept, Roger Rabbit works, uh, works for our purposes. I guess I'll start. Um, the movie came out in 1988 before I was born. Uh, it's even the older book, than you. I know, ancient. Uh, the book, even older, surprisingly. 81. My introduction to Roger Rabbit wasn't a direct introduction. I wasn't shown it at a young age, even though it spawned the Disney Renaissance, and we'll talk about that. We had a VHS of Little Mermaid, and we had a VHS of Beauty and the Beast. We didn't have that VHS of Roger Rabbit in the house, because we were young. But I feel I, like your family also would have been a little too racy. Yeah, it definitely would have been too racy for, for my mom. She would not allow it. Yeah, just the vibe of Jessica Rabbit in general would be enough for your mom to have banned it, I think. Maybe. Well, let's show her when she's in town and we'll see. We'll ask her. (laughs) So, my introduction to it wasn't direct, it was more indirect. I got really into movie lists. Because between when AFI put out the first 100 list in 97 and the second one in 07... They ran a lot of TV specials that was like top 10 laughs in movie history, top 10 villains. And they would do one of these a year, one every, or two every year. I remember all the top... These... I don't remember the list, but I remember the top 10s. Yeah, and these would air on TV. And I would watch them just because I knew I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of movies. And... People around me, my peers, were allowed to watch more than I was. So there's there's a language that comes with that of pop culture references. And I didn't understand most of them. But I started to learn them from watching these lists. Because I wasn't watching Terminator. But this list would tell me, okay, Terminator was a good guy in the second one, but he was the bad guy in the first one. Played by Arnold. And I would get bits of the story and stuff like that. And I remember Roger Rabbit appearing in a few of these i know one of jessica's lines um i'm not bad i'm just drawn that way that's the one uh was in the top quotes it was on that poster i had in college of the top film quotes of course it was it's an excellent quote it's it's a good line it would be like top laughs that kind of thing like it would it would show up on these lists and then as i got older i still didn't take the time away to see it and I'd be scrolling the internet on movie websites and rumors of the missing underwear in a couple frames of Jessica Rabbit when they crashed the car uh, surfaced alongside, you know, oh, there's a naked woman in one of the windows in The Rescuers when they're flying through New York and you could see the guy's boner in Little Mermaid and it would appear on lists like that. So I knew about that aspect of the movie. And it wasn't until... Oh, God, 2016? 
I think I actually sat down and watched it for the first time. I feel like I sat down and watched it with you because that you were my introduction to this. Like yeah. obviously there was osmosis, but also you at least recognized that you lacked the pop culture references. I really should have been diagnosed autistic much earlier in life because I just didn't get it. I, it was like everyone else was speaking on a language level that I didn't understand, but also I didn't care because I didn't realize it. But yeah, I, di- I just missed all of that with Roger Rabbit. I never had any interest in it. It wasn't something that appealed to me. And then I can't remember why you sat down and watched it. You know what? That's not true. I was aware of it because I had a friend that cosplayed Jessica Rabbit when she went to cons. Gotcha. Um, but that was, that was like my only touchstone of it. Yeah. You and I both went to Disney when we were kids and this is a Disney property. It's, it's, it's famous for being the only example. That's the other thing that I would see on internet things aside from the nakedness was that it's the one example of Disney characters and Warner brother characters appearing on screen at the same time in an official capacity, a legal rights held capacity. But the movie is held by Disney and they used a bit of uh, the characters for advertising in the parks, specifically when Hollywood Studios opened, uh, MGM at the time. I believe Roger Rabbit was used alongside Mickey in a Toontown section. That sounds right. And yeah. Jessica Rabbit was used at Pleasure Island. I was only, I couldn't remember the name of it. Thank you for remembering. Uh, Jessica Rabbit was used at at Pleasure Island because. That was the adults area of the park, and she hot. That, you know, I feel like I remember this, but also it seems more like a Universal Studios thing. It does, right? Yeah. I'd expect that at Universal. And maybe that's why I don't recall it from when I went to Disney in the early mid-90s. We did both, so honestly everything just kind of blurred together. Yeah. So like I was saying, it's strange that we weren't more exposed to this when we were younger, because we were Disney kids, we grew up during the Renaissance. I remember seeing Lion King in theaters, but this movie wasn't utilized the same way as the fully animated ones were. Yeah. And it kind of missed us because of that, because Disney didn't hold on to the legacy of it in the same way they held on to the legacy of you know, Lion King. Yeah. And also, I feel like that has to do with the fact that from what I remember of the movie... It's kind of mocking cartoons, and they kind of would want to distance themselves from that. I read it more like a love letter to 50s cartoons. The the book, it's conflicting, because uh, obviously it's an alternate universe where cartoons exist in the real world. Well, before we get into it fully, I did want to talk about why we're reviewing Roger Rabbit this week, and it was because it was a suggestion from friend of the pod, Mark. Um, I actually asked him if he had anything he wanted to say as to why he wants us to look at this, and this is what he told me. Quote, I love the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but it wasn't until the Red Letter Media review of the movie that I learned it was based on a book. I understand that there are some very significant differences between the two, to the point where the book can seriously involve a wish-granting genie in the mystery that is not mentioned at all in the movie. I would love to know more about the movie, and since I am illiterate, I hope that Cody can describe the differences between the two versions for me. Love the pod. Love you too. Thanks. No, thank you, Mark. 
Mommy's going to the beauty parlor, darling. But I'm leaving you with your favorite friend, Roger. He's going to take very, very good care of you. Because if he doesn't, he's going back to the science lab. wrong with that take? Nothing with you, baby Herman. You were great. You were perfect. You were better than perfect. Just Roger. He keeps blowing his lines. Roger. What's this? A tweeting bird. Tweeting bird. Roger, read the script. Look what it says. It says rabbit gets clunked. Rabbit sees stars. Not birds. Stars! Can we lose the playback, please? You're killing me. Killing me. But crying out loud, Roger. How the hell many times do we have to do this damn scene? Raul, I'll be in my trailer. Taking a nap! Woo! Excuse me, Please, Bunch. Raul, I can give you stars. Just drop the refrigerator in my head one more time. Roger, I dropped it on your head 23 times already. I can take it. Don't worry about me. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about the refrigerator. This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit and a down-and-out private detective stay out. named Eddie Valiant. Booga booga! Every moment they were together ah! was a new adventure in trouble. Hide me, Eddie! Please! It's a motion picture about friendship. Please, Eddie! Don't tell me I'm making a big mistake! Love. <laughs> Compassion. Well, I'm, I'm I'm sorry I yanked your ears. All the time you yanked my ears? Murder. Marvin Acme. A rabbit cacked him last night. Remember, you never saw me. Sex. I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant. Anything. And violence. Tunes gets him every time. You wouldn't have any idea where the rabbit might be? Got a thing for rabbits, huh? The whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. It's a comedy a little different from all the rest. I'm a pig! I'm a tune. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. But tell me, Eddie, is that a rabbit in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? Touchstone Pictures and Steven Spielberg present a Robert Zemeckis film. We tunes may act idiotic, but we're not stupid. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Let's get into it. What is the book about? Because as we've alluded to, it's fucking different. (laughs) So the book either takes place in 1981 in the alternate universe of the book or 1947. It's not totally clear. I lean more towards 1947 because of the lack of specific technology. But the... Universe that it takes place in is one where cartoons, comic characters exist alongside real people and they are just referred to as tunes. Uh, So your main character, Eddie Valiant, is a hard-boiled private eye who takes a case from Roger Rabbit, a second banana comic strip character. Roger hires Valiant to find out why his employers, the DeGreasy brothers, Rocco and Dominic... I used to watch DeGreasy on uh, Teen Nick in the 90s. I do love those shows about Canadian high schools. (sighs) Sorry, continue. (laughs) Uh, They are the owners of the cartoon syndicate and his contract. Uh, They have reneged on a promise to give Roger his own strip. Um, 
So it's it's a pretty standard noir, except you're adding cartoon characters into it, right? Yeah. So soon after, Roger is mysteriously murdered in his home. His speech balloon, which that's another thing, is these characters, the tunes, speak in speech balloons. When they talk, it creates balloons, which I think is a cocaine joke because the balloons disintegrate and create white dust. So his speech balloon is hidden under his body and uh, it indicates his murder was as a way of censoring him. Uh, who because he'd apparently just heard someone explain the source of his sudden success to him. The same time, Roger's boss, Rocco DeGreasy, is also murdered, and multiple witnesses point to Roger as the killer, as he was allegedly seen fleeing the scene of the crime. Valiant's search for the killer uh, takes him to a variety of suspects, which includes Roger's estranged, wi- estranged widow, Jessica Rabbit, Roger's former co-star, Baby Herman, and Roger's uh, photographer, Carol Masters. Valiant then meets a doppelganger of Roger's and promises to solve the mystery of his death. Another thing that's important in this that I did not bring up is that in this uh, book, cartoons have the ability to create doppelgangers of themselves. It is used... Uh, the explanation is that they create these doppelgangers. They only last for a certain period of time, and it's to do uh, dangerous shoots or stunts. Like when you see when you first meet Jessica Rabbit in the book, she's doing a helicopter stunt, and it's a doppelganger. Mm. While Valiant investigates, the key suspects ask him to be on the lookout for a certain tea kettle in exchange for a reward. Um, so Dominic DeGreasy. Uh, Rocco DeGreasy, before he died, when he uh, first talked to Eddie Valiant and Jessica Rabbit, all ask him about this tea kettle. Uh, there is a red herring, uh, secondary, like a B-plot involving art theft and forgery and porn made by Jessica Rabbit. Why was this B-plot cut from the movie? <laughs> well, they kind of... Why couldn't Disney adapt this part? Then there wouldn't be a thriving underscene in the porn industry of Jessica Rabbit fetish porn. Disney would have already made all that money. I feel like they make reference to it with the patty cake thing with Jessica. They do. Um, But yes, it is straight up actual porn that she makes. And it turns out that the guy that was making it was working with Roger's photographer and Rocco DeGreasy's son, uh, who owned an art gallery, and they were basically duplicating these negatives uh, of this uh, porn that she shot to embezzle or um, blackmail money out of the DeGreasy's. So um, eventually he finds the kettle, which was in Roger's possession, and gives it to Dominic, only to find out the kettle is actually a magic lamp with a genie inside that kills Dominic. The genie also admits to being the one who shot Roger. Valiant holds the genie hostage over a saltwater fish tank because he, throughout the book, he discovers that there's certain ways you can kill a genie and one of the ways is you have to drown it in the ocean. So the genie that is then forced to grant a wish made by Valiant for proof of Roger's innocence, which is provided in the form of a suicide letter from Dominic, confessing to both murders, because Dominic is also now dead, along with his own suicide, he does not trust the genie to keep its word of letting him go, and also knowing that no one would believe him about the genie, Valiant does end up uh, dropping the genie's lamp into the fish tank, and the genie is dissolved. 
With Roger's murderer disposed of, Valiant concludes that the DeGreasy murderer was actually the original Roger Rabbit himself, because uh, he's been working with the doppelganger this whole time. Roger created the doppelganger as an alibi, specifically. Because it's also mentioned, like, your short-term memory as a tune is disrupted when you create a doppelganger. So y the doppelganger has no memory of the murder. Mm. Um, and the doppelganger admits to it. Because he said that the original Roger called him. He went into a store, commented on the lateness of the hour to call attention to the shopkeep and give himself an alibi. Uh, but he didn't realize that uh, Jessica was home at the time of the murder and saw him leaving. And Roger was like, you know what? Even though you knew this about me, you still cleared my name. I appreciate you. And then he disintegrates into dust and floats out the window. And everyone is terrible. The end. <laughs> so it's slightly different than the movie. Just a little bit. Although there are some interesting similarities I've... I noticed in that, because this is the first time actually hearing the full plot. Yeah. So there are some things we'll talk about. In case you haven't seen the movie, in which case, pause this. It's on Disney+. Plus. Watch it now. Come back. <laughs> they might take it off in the next five minutes. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, the plot of the movie. Uh, Eddie Valiant, private investigator, is hired by R.K. Maroon to get pictures of his cartoon star Roger Rabbit's wife, Jessica, cheating. So... Uh, similarly, this universe is humans coexist alongside cartoons. Cartoons play themselves in the cartoons that air before movies. Basic premise. Roger Rabbit's the star of a lot of these cartoons. He's having tough times on shoots. Something is in his head. So Maroon hires Valiant to get pictures of Jessica Rabbit cheating to bring him closure. When he delivers the photo of her playing Patty Cake with Marvin Acme of, yes, that Acme Corporation... Roger gets drunk, runs off. Later that night, Acme is found dead, crushed by a safe, which the way the body outline is under the safe where it lands, it is safe directly to head. He is decapitated by a safe falling on his head. It is presumed that Roger did it. He had a motive. He has no alibi. Valiant is at the scene of the crime with the police because he's a former cop, so this is how he learns about all this. And he can tell something's not right when Judge Doom appears, who has jurisdiction over Toontown, uh, but appears as a human, and shows a chemical that can completely kill cartoons that he has called Dip. And he dips a runaway squeaky shoe in it, just executing an innocent man for no reason, without trial. God bless America. You mentioned the cops, so... Yeah. So Valiant starts recognizing that something's fishy. Uh, especially when Baby Herman comes to him, Roger's co-star, and tells him that Acme had a will. Even though there was none, and uh, the newspapers are reporting that Cloverfield Industries are about to buy Acme's land, Herman says there's a will that says that land goes to the Toons. They just need to find it. Shortly after talking to Herman, Valiant finds Roger hiding out in his office, um, the only alibi he has is a love letter he wrote for Jessica that he wrote in her lipstick on a blank piece of paper he found in her dressing room. Uh, the same dressing room where pictures of Acme and Jessica were taken playing patty cake. Which sounds like a euphemism for sex, but no, it's literally just pictures of them hands on hands doing the patty cake motions. Yep. Great bit. Which is like even more embarrassing somehow. Y y almost... <laughs> But you know it's a weird fetish thing for this old man. Like, yeah. he's still getting sexually gratified from it, and she's just annoyed. 
So Roger and Eddie, along with uh, Eddie's former uh, girlfriend, Dolores, set off to unravel the truth. So the story is this. Judge Doom is the owner of Cloverleaf Industries. He murdered Acme to ensure that he owns Toontown. He's also purchased land from RK Maroon, and he's purchased the streetcar company in L.A. L.A., which at the time, and this is not a joke, had the best public transportation in the country. Buying all this land will allow him to build a new freeway, I believe the 110 freeway, from Hollywood to Pasadena. It would destroy Toontown and allow him to open up gas stations, mechanics, car dealerships, money, money, capitalism, God bless America. He's foiled when uh, Valiant turns his Toontown erasing truck full of dip against him, spills dip all over the floor. It's, it's revealed that Judge Doom is also a tune, just so happens to be the tune that murdered Acme and Valiant's brother. Uh, he gets melted. Roger and Jessica are saved. It turns out that the blank piece of paper Roger wrote the love letter on was the will, which was written in disappearing and reappearing ink. And the Toontown residents are given their land, and we live happily ever after. The end. Separately but equal. Separate but equal. <laughs> uh, should we talk about that first? Do we want to talk about how I noticed there's a subtle reference to the building of Dodger Stadium in the movie? Uh, okay, let's talk about that. Okay, so real quick. Um, the plot of this movie is destroying a neighborhood to build uh, something, some piece of infrastructure for public use under eminent domain. Which is a thing that really happened in the Chavez Ravine. In LA in the 50s, a neighborhood known as Chavez Ravine was taken by the city bulldozed and filled to build Dodger Stadium. And the location of Dodger Stadium is not that far from the hypothetical location of Toontown in this film. So, that's that. Uh, so, I'm assuming Chavez Ravine was um, a primarily non-white community? Uh, it sure was. It was a uh, fairly independent uh, Latino community. They didn't leave the ravine often because they didn't have to they had their own schools they had their own hospitals if you were to dig down under dodger stadium today you would find the shell of a school it's gross yeah it's really gross um the reference in the movie to this is one line where eddie says something about the brooklyn dodgers <laughs> knowing that this movie came out in 88 the people writing the movie live in los angeles they were probably alive when Chavez Ravine was demolished. They would remember Brooklyn moving to L.A. and they would know this story. They would understand the parallels. That line is there specifically. Uh, I feel like cartoons are uh, an allegory for racism in Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Just a couple of the notes that I have here are um, they're treated as second class citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, in the book, the specific language and the way that their bodies are described it's really similar to uh, the way that, like, specifically black women's bodies are described. Uh, and there's, like, a lot of, like, weird hang-ups around sexual desire for tunes. Um, there's a lot of conversation about how you can pass or cross the line. Uh, that's actually the degreases. They had already had the magic lantern and used it to wish themselves as two humans because they were originally cartoons. They were born cartoons. 
And the other thing is you have the idea of humanoid versus barnyard tunes. So Jessica Rabbit is a humanoid tune. Roger Rabbit is a barnyard tune. Uh, So you have that sort of um, respectability politics. So... So the humanoid tunes are are more light-skinned, shall we say? Yeah, generally. Ugh. And uh, they can also blend in with society. They're easy. It's noted that they will uh, suppress their word bubbles and speak only vocally. Oh, yeah, that's hitting the nail on the head. They uh, the specifically the human versus bar, or humanoid versus barnyard also made me think of fable. Fable, the cartoon or comic series where the um, fairy tale creatures are forced to come into the real world. When we have the time to do video game adaptations of books, we'll cover Fable. (laughs) (laughs) But like that reminded me of the whole bit with uh, the liberation of the barnyard fairy tale creatures uh, with Goldilocks and stuff. Yeah, the politics of that aren't quite the same in the film. Um, The closest we get is the. Ink and Spot Club, which is the club where Jessica Rabbit performs. Is that a mixed or only tunes? All of the performers are tunes. All of the guests, the customers, are humans. And it is a direct reference to the Cotton Club in Harlem, which was in a black neighborhood. All black performers usually doing jungle-themed performances for an audience of white people. And this is a real thing in American history. Yeah, that cringe look on your face. Yep. I mentioned the uh, the cocaine dust when the balloons pop. Yeah. But looking at looking at all of those like various ways that the tunes are an allegory for racism is kind of uncomfortable in the book because Roger is actually a bad guy, and you've got tune on technically tune violence. Yeah. It was the Ink and Paint Club, by the way. I misspoke. Ah. That also is a reference to Disney. Ink and Paint Club? Because Ink and Paint is the uh, that one section. I have the yeah. ears for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the password to get in is Walt sent me. Oh, that's gross. That's direct. <laughs> <laughs> Walt doesn't have, like, racist history in him, does he? He loved the Jews, didn't he? We're going to get so in trouble. Oh, that would require more than five people to hear this. Fair. Uh, you know, though, the, the mouse has long arms. Um, <laughs> and sticky fingers. <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, not a subtle allegory. <laughs> no, no, not subtle at all. <laughs> Also, even though you've got that, um, you still, like I said, this is a pretty straightforward noir. So you also have all of the noir tropes of like the femme fatale. So you've got two of those in the book because you've got Carol Masters, the human, and you've got Jessica Rabbit, the tune. You've got two in the movie. Instead of Carol Masters, it's Dolores, his his girlfriend. Um, she even provides him with a camera. She's in the book. Carol Masters is the photographer. Exactly, exactly. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of jump a little bit into Jessica Rabbit here. So everywhere that I see on the internet says her famous line is in the book. I went through it twice. That line is not in the book, and the line I'm referring to is the. Um, I'm not bad, Mister Valiant. I was drawn this way. Exactly. In the book, she is bad. She is the typical femme fatale in that 
she never loved Roger. It was part of the, um, her marrying him was because she was compelled to by the genie. She was with Rocco de Greasy because he had a bunch of money, but she was also, I won't say hooking up with, but she was definitely leading on multiple people uh, that she was going to get more. She was going to give them more if they, if they got her what she wanted. She also does the porn and there's conflicting stories about why she does it. She says she was coerced into doing it and drugged. Uh, the guy who actually shot the porn, because in, in this universe, when I say shoot, it's comic strips for the book. So it's actual like photographs of stuff happening. So when I say shoot, that's what I mean. Not like shooting a cartoon. Right. But the guy who was actually shooting the, the porn says that she loved it. Uh, and Roger gets really upset. Because that's one of the things that's like, even though Roger turns out to be a quote-unquote bad guy, uh, he still 100% loves Jessica. Because everyone loves Jessica. I actually prefer her character in the movie. It's more fun uh, looking at her in the movie because she's straight up just a male fantasy in the book. But that's kind of something that they explore in the movie, which is with that line, I'm not bad, I was just drawn this way. It's, she's playing on that mm -hmm. because she knows what her power is. And also in the movie, if I'm correct, she genuinely loves Roger and it's because he's funny and exactly. nice to her. She's given agency in the movie. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like she wasn't so much in the book. She has agency, but it's the kind of agency you usually see in noir movies mm -hmm. or noirs where it's like... Taking advantage of a guy to get her way, basically. Exactly. Yeah, it's a little different in the movie because it's not clear throughout whose side she's on. She heel, heel turns, face turns a few times. At one point, when Valiant's in R.K. Maroon's office to get some information from him, he keeps Roger outside... To honk the horn if something happens. And Jessica hits him with the frying pan and throws him in the trunk. And then she later explains, oh no, I was just doing that to keep him safe. Because I know how dangerous this situation is. You don't know that you know Judge Doom is right here sneaking up behind you. I didn't want Roger hurt, so I saved him. And she's telling the truth. She yeah. loves him. And I love that she's able to take control of that situation and be the strong one in the relationship. But still love her short king. Yeah, like, Roger is definitely dopey, and he definitely does have, in the book, he does have that more kind of, like, he is playing the stupid cartoon character, because that's what everyone expects of him, and there could, there's a whole conversation there that could be had about, like, what you do when you expect people to think a certain way of you. Especially knowing the, um, the racial allegory that's at play here. Exactly. It's definitely intentional. It's just interesting because I, of course, watched the movie first and then read the book. I didn't watch the movie recently, but seeing Jessica in the book, I was like, oh, she's just straight up like the archetypal stone cold bitch mm -hmm. um, who's only after money. And it's only she breaks down in the end because she's going to get arrested for Roger's murder because everyone thinks that she killed him. She didn't, obviously. It was the genie, which is... Such like it's such a good cartoon Deus Ex Machina to have in this universe. Like it's so silly, but it makes perfect sense to use it because why not? Exactly. If they had waited six years to make the movie, you know they would have kept the genie in there and used Robin Williams. Oh, 
Yeah, you're right. It it wouldn't it wouldn't be dated right because every other cartoon is from the 40s, but I still think they could have made it work. <laughs> um, like it's the same genie and he is just ancient. <laughs> I mean, he he is actually ancient in the in the book. He is described as basically like the weapon that he uses to murder people is one that is implied he took from Captain Blackbeard. Oh, so it's like an 18th century like pistol. It's it's fun, and I get like when I was reading, I was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" But it makes sense because this is a universe where stupid shit like that can happen. Mm-hmm. But even Eddie's like, no one's going to fucking believe this. And just <laughs> I love that that's like, they completely removed the genie and they changed the, the crime and culprits and everything for the movie. But the villain is still destroyed by being dipped in liquid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll keep that element, please. Thank you. Just that one piece. I don't want the ice cream cone, but the sprinkles. Give me some of them sprinkles. So you've got the same basic thing where you have like, in the movie, you've got the MacGuffin of the will. In the book, you've got the MacGuffin of the tea kettle. And it's the same sort of view. You've got the same type of villain in the sense that it's someone who is trying. Capitalism is the villain. Um... (laughs) Capitalism is the villain in almost every story. Yeah. But it's interesting how you can still kind of get to the same end, except it's a happy ending for the movie. (laughs) Yeah. It's a happy ending that is not based in history, because as we know, the 110 freeway does exist. Yay. And General Motors conspired to destroy the streetcar system in our lovely city, which is why I had to take a $45 Uber home from the bar in Culver last night. Wee. (laughs) Thanks, GM. I should just bill them for all my lifts. <laughs> I would love to see. They might pay. You never know. I'll just put them on, like, company invoice and send it and just see if they recognize it. <laughs> just get the new guy in accounts payable and it just... I don't know what this means, but it's 45 bucks for GM. <laughs> wasn't there Wasn't there a dude that uh, did that yeah. with... For, like, years? Yeah, that's definitely, like... Like, he... A movie based on that guy? But there's definitely a guy who just used fake company letterhead on invoices and sent it to big companies and just got checks. Onesie twosies, like 100 here, 1,000 yeah, there. Yeah, just what he needed when he needed it. Yeah. That should still be a thing. <laughs> Why is that not still a thing? I'm going to make that a thing again. I mean, legally. For legal purposes, this, this is, is a, a joke. This is a joke. Um, so those were, I mean, like, obviously besides the big changes, those were the two things that uh, I wanted to, to bring up. Um, I can talk about the adaptation a little bit itself. Yeah. Um, it's directed by Robert Zemeckis, famous for Back to the Future, Forrest Gump, Contact. <laughs> Very different movies. Very different movies. If you don't know who Robert Zemeckis is by name alone, watch more movies. I'm begging you. Um, I, f- I feel like Back to the Future has the same type of vibe as Roger Rabbit. So, funny story. Disney bought the rights to this book in 1981. And the screenwriters, Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman, were writing drafts that early. And they had Zemeckis on board that early. And Disney Brass went, We just watched your last two movies, Bob. No. Not feeling it. We'll find somebody else. And it just sat and waited 
And then six, seven years later, Zemeckis came back on the scene. I just made Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future. <laughs> oh, yeah, you did. Come on, get in here. You got this. <laughs> Greenlit. So uh, the writers that I mentioned, uh, Jeffrey Price, Peter Seaman, uh, aren't as prolific as Zemeckis. Wild Wild West, Shrek the Third, The How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The Jim Carrey? The Jim Carrey one. As far as cast goes, Eddie Valiant played by Bob Hoskins. Hook, Brazil, Super Mario Brothers, you know, the holy trinity of of actors' dreams. So, on the cover of uh, the book, I'm just going to show you the, the cover here. That looks like Tommy Lee Jones, right? <laughs> it does have a bit of Tommy Lee Jones to it. Um, when was this print? Because that it looks like Tommy Lee Jones now, right? Not this edition from 1982. <laughs> it's like Tommy Lee Jones, like MIB era. Yeah, it's it's funny because they had a lot of names lined up to play Eddie. I know uh, Spielberg, who produced uh, with Amblin alongside Kathleen Kennedy, wanted Harrison Ford. I mean, he had done Blade Runner at that point, right? He had done Indiana Jones at this point. He done well, Star Wars at this point. I mentioned specifically Blade Runner because he's a detective in Blade Runner. Oh, as well. yeah, good point, good point. And this is kind of like a, a funny twist on that. Yeah, um, they couldn't afford him. Because for the other reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, Disney cut the budget from, I think, 50 to 30 um, to get it greenlit. And most of that budget was going towards the animation effects, which are immense. Most of the research I did on this movie was just about the animation and the extra mile they took to to get everything done. Alongside Harrison Ford, um, Eddie Murphy was offered the role, and he turned it down, which he later regretted. I feel like it would have been more racy. Yeah, with Eddie Murphy. Um, just because of the style of comedy he was doing in the late 80s was a lot less family-friendly than the movie turned out. Yeah. Um, the other actor they wanted was Bill Murray. Bill Murray is too wink-wink, nudge-nudge. I think you need someone that plays it straight. Yeah, I can see that. Um, he ended up not getting the role because no one could get a hold of him. That also sounds correct. Like, he didn't know he was considered until, I think, after the movie came out, he read a report while in public and melted down a little bit about it. I mean... <laughs> Just, like, imagine you wake up one day and, like, oh, you see your name next to the biggest role of the year as could have been. And you're like, why the fuck did I pick up my phone? Fuck! <laughs> 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 but you're Bill Murray... So it also doesn't matter because you still got thirty-five years of excellent career ahead of you. Yeah. Um, so you they haven't did... even met Wes yet. So. <laughs> oh, Wes. Um, so yeah, they ended up with Bob Hoskins, which I think he's labeled as attractive in the book. He, it's, mm, it's never clear whether he is or not because the people that he's hitting on and are hitting on him, you're never sure whether they're doing it to get something out of him. Like, he clearly thinks that Jessica is doing it to get something out of him. I kind of saw him as, like, Humphrey Bogart. Okay, yeah. Like, he's good-looking in a certain light, you know? But his his whole deal is that, no, I'm unapproachable. Yeah. So I read that... They were looking at more attractive men and then not settled on Hoskins, but decided to go with a different direction 
with how the character looked and cast Bob Hoskins. Yeah. There is a scene where he's got his shirt off. Not bad. All right. All right, Mario. Yeah. Mario. All right, Mario. Mario can land Peach if he wants to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Other casting, Judge Doom was played by Christopher Lloyd. Hell yeah. You know, Back to the Future, Adam's Family, Suburban Commando. You threw that one in there just for yourself. I sure did. (laughs) You know that day? He was frozen. Um, Dolores was played by Joanna Cassidy, who was in Blade Runner. Oh, hey. There we go. Roger Rabbit, played by Charles Fleischer. Uh, Also in Back to the Future, he was in Nightmare on Elm Street. He was in Zodiac. Who did he play in uh, Back to the Future? I did not recognize the name. Smaller role. Oh, okay. I couldn't really place him in anything that that he did. I assumed uh, that he would have been a voice actor or something, and he didn't do a lot of voice acting. Oh. In fact, when they were shooting the movie to stay in character, he'd show up on set dressed as Roger Rabbit. Oh, please tell me he was wearing a shirt. I don't know. Because <laughs> that's, that's one of the descriptors of Roger is that he only wears suspenders. He does not wear a shirt. I'm Googling pictures right now. He was wearing a shirt. He was okay. wearing a white shirt and big red overalls. He was wearing bunny ears as well. Oh, you lord. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently uh, neighboring sets would see him walk on and off set and just go, man, that movie's going to look like shit. <laughs> 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 Completely not understanding that he was getting rotoscoped over, animated over every scene. Fair. Which... That process, I'm not an animation. If you want more details on this, I haven't listened to it, but Talking Simpsons did a six and a half hour podcast on this movie. Of course they did. I'm sure they go into a lot of detail on this. (laughs) But from what I read to animate this, they basically had to print every frame of this movie and animate on cells over photos of the frame and then have them re-photographed and re-spliced into film. Good lord. It took, I think, 11 months after the five-month shoot to animate everything. Wow. And this meant no retakes, no reshoots, no cutting bits for pacing, no adding bits for pacing. What they had after principal filming was what they had. They basically had to finish the movie before they could finish the movie. Wow. So it's one of those situations watching it, because Disney Plus has the 4K. It's... The best I've ever seen this movie look, you can see where the seams should be, but you can't see the seams still. It still holds up that well. What a piece of incredible art that these animators made. It's almost like if you're willing to put in the time and the effort as a creator and the work, you can do amazing things if you don't cheap out. Yeah, Hollywood, pay your fucking writers. And also, no more fucking crunch. Animation crunch should not be a thing. I'm no. so... You're right. Because I just read about the third Spider-Man, Spider-Verse movie. It's supposed to come out next year and they haven't done anything yet? All I Delay have Delay that shit three years. All I have heard is how incredible the feats of animation that they pulled off for Across the Spider-Verse were. 
And it was just everyone, like artists and everyone just on Twitter, like, this is incredible. This is beautiful. This is amazing. And now we're hearing a hundred artists. You chewed up and spit out a hundred artists. And the person, the woman who was in charge had the audacity to say, welcome to making movies. No, fuck you. This is why two different guilds are on strike right now in this town. I want like, shorter movies that look worse, paid by people to do more, to do less. And I'm you not know the kidding. meme. Oh my god. Yeah, because like AI doesn't know how many fingers a hand is supposed to have. Do you think they can animate in Roger Rabbit into a live action scene and have him hitting boxes and lamps and dust falls off of chairs when he sits down and all this like brilliant marriage of animation and live action. You can't do that with AI. You can't do that cheap. Disney needed to put $30 million, which is not even a movie budget anymore. It's either 200000 or $200 million. There's no mid-range movies anymore. But they were willing to take $30 million, combine their animation studio and their live action. It rebirthed Disney animation to the classics I named before, yeah. Movies that we still watch that they're still making money off of today with shitty remakes. And even I feel like all of the like stories that you hear, like with uh, Little Mermaid, like if the bubbles didn't work, there were not going to be bubbles. Or like with Beauty and the Beast, if there were, if they couldn't get the 3D aspect of the dance scene to work, they were going to dance in a dark room. Like you still have animation challenges yeah. that you run into and don't know how to overcome. It's. It's just fascinating to me knowing that this led to the renaissance. All of the money that those movies made. Like, Beauty and the Beast was nominated for fucking Best Picture. Lion King is one of my top three favorite movies. This came from a $30 million investment that turned into a $70 million investment. Into this weird adaptation of a weird novel. You have to be willing to... Like, bet on the weird stuff because you don't know what's going to come out of it. They made so much money as a result of doing something mid-range and they're willing to throw that away and not try that anymore. I yeah. think is where I'm so upset about it. Yeah. It's like how they ended 2D animation when that was... You could have kept going with that. Yeah. Like, Princess and the Frog didn't do great. They also didn't market it well. The timing wasn't great. I can't remember what it was up against uh, that summer... But I think DreamWorks had a big release that summer, too. Was that How to Train Your Dragon, and or is that too early? Regardless, like, that doesn't mean stop and completely transition. Computers are doing so much of the labor now that the human element that makes this stuff have life is is leaving. And that's the problem. Like, not to harp on Disney, but let's harp on Disney. You can watch a Marvel movie in theaters and then watch it when it comes out on Disney+, Plus, and stuff's going to be different. Yeah. Like the the no the spider-man thing where i guess in theaters he was catching a lamp and in when it came out on disney plus he was catching a brick in the dining room scene with the uh, oh, daredevil yeah. and peter yeah, yeah yeah lilo and stitch now if you watch that on disney plus she doesn't hide in the dryer she hides in a cabinet with a pizza box in front of it why i think that one's so that kids don't hide in dryers ah fair but also Come on. It's not like that movie is designed to make you think about good decisions anyway. But it just it's it's getting to the point where you don't have things that have the heart and soul that was put into this weird little movie and or book. Exactly. 
like, I just watched and listened to a podcast on When Harry Met Sally yesterday. Mm-hmm. And that kind of movie no longer exists. Where you have two big-name actors. Rob Reiner directed that. He's a big director. And it's just two people talking the movie. The two people change throughout, but it's still just two people talking the movie. And it's a classic. Another thing, and this is, like, semi-unrelated, but, like... They were just normal-looking people. Like, yes, Meg Ryan is adorable, but she's not, like, fucking Kim Kardashian. Yeah, but she's fucking adorable, though. But that was the thing. You could be adorable and get and get movie star status off of being adorable. Name me one current superstar that is adorable. And not hot. That's the thing. Like, Meg Ryan was hot adorable. Like... I don't know. We are off on a fucking tangent. We are. This is, this <laughs> I don't know is a where tangent. we're going with this. Uh, anyway, to go back to the uh, the cast and crew. Acme was played by Stubby K. This was his last role. Um, he did a lot of musicals uh, coming up, uh, specifically Lil Abner, which I think is also based off a comic strip. That sounds correct, yes. And uh, Guys and Dolls. Arkay Maroon was played by Alan Tillivern, who was previously in Little Shop of Horrors. And Jessica Rabbit, uncredited, voiced by Kathleen Turner. Jessica Rabbit is uncredited? So, no. She's credited. But the actress who's credited... Like, Jessica Rabbit is the iconic person in this movie. That's what everyone remembers. The actress that's credited for Jessica Rabbit is uh, Betsy Brantley, who was her performance model. And there was another voice actress credited that's not on IMDb for some reason who was her singing voice she was also credited but Kathleen Turner herself who did the lines wasn't that's kind of fucked up right I think she wanted it that way I think like it was definitely intentional um I believe she was nine months pregnant when she recorded the lines Ah. and I think she did it as a favor to Zemeckis because they did Romancing the Stone um tracks um but yeah Kathleen Turner who would later uh, star alongside uh, Judge Doom Christopher Lloyd in Baby Geniuses. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. I like causing pain sometimes. Ugh. Um, so we've already talked about some of the changes, but... Yeah, let's, like, why did they go in such a completely different direction? Because the, the whole Toontown getting destroyed for a highway is not in the book, right? No, 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 it's not. So... The writers loved the movie Chinatown. This this has Chinatown vibes, and I don't know if it's just because that's like the touchstone noir, touchstone modern noir. It's it's a touchstone modern noir in LA specifically about this history. Yeah. So it's conceivable that if Chinatown took place in this universe, this story would be happening down the street. And I think the writers recognized that. Because even starting in 1981, they were looking at the two proposed sequels to Chinatown, which one was made into the two Jakes, and the other was called Cloverleaf. And it was about the automobile and tire manufacturers buying the streetcars out in L.A., dismantling them and forcing all of us to buy cars instead. And Jake was going to investigate the corruption... And backdoor dealings involved in that. 
They knew about this sequel. It was nowhere close to being made. The second one was made after Roger Rabbit. Um, so they decided to write elements of that sequel into this universe. And that's how we came to the plot that we know for Roger Rabbit, as opposed to the original novel. I, I get it. Um, I get why we would go in that direction, because they're beyond the fact that it's comic strip stars this really isn't tied to la in any way shape or form like it's you've got the 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 celebrity element of it but you don't need there's no reason it needs to be la yeah and if you wanted to tell the story where you needed to set it in la that's a good way to do it yeah and also i'm i just i'm thinking the delivery system with a book, you're reading something on page. Comic strips are read on a page. You're still in that same medium, so to speak. Yeah. With a film, you watch cartoons on TV or in movie theaters before features. So if we're making a movie about this book, we'll use cartoon characters instead of comic strip characters. We'll take advantage of the fact that we can move. Yeah. It's like when, when Neil Gaiman was saying with Stardust that the movie just takes place in a, a parallel dimension to the novel. Yeah. It feels like that's there, except they're not quite parallel, and they're like a few <laughs> few dimensions further down the row. <laughs> it's just the medium in which we're viewing the universe changes what can happen in the universe, I guess is what I'm saying. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe you. I agree with you. <laughs> okay. I'm agreeing with you. Let me be nice to you. No! I don't know how it feels, and I don't like it. <laughs> But yeah, that's something that you bring up an interesting point with the fact that in the book, it is comic strips because they do make references and run into other comic strip characters. Like, Do, do they run into like famous characters? Yes. They run into Dick Tracy. They run in... Superman is mentioned, but not, um, not appears. They tried to get Superman for the movie. They were going to do a funeral scene for Acme. And include, like, Superman and Casper the Friendly Ghost and all these characters they couldn't get the rights to. And then they scrapped it because they couldn't get the rights in time to shoot it. Okay. Um, there is a one-off uh, reference to Mickey Mouse. Uh, Rocco DeGreasy is wearing a Mickey Mouse watch. But that's the only specifically Disney reference in the whole thing. Um Trying to think. You've got Baby Herman, but that's I don't think that's a real character. Um, He's original to the story, I believe. Uh, Hagar the Horrible, Beetle Bailey, Blondie. Okay, yeah. So, like... The, the, what, the heavy hitters, especially in the 80s. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Like, if you... I remember reading the comic strips, the comic section of the Sunday paper with my parents as a kid, and those were always the ones that popped up. Yeah. And similarly, same universe different perspective who are the big cartoon characters you've got the disney characters which are of course going to be in this disney production you got the warner characters the looney tunes yeah you got to put them in there so famously the deal they had with warner was that if they used a warner character they had to have as much screen time to the frame as the comparable disney character wasn't it like bugs and donald so, the first scene is at the Ink and Paint Club. It's Donald Duck and Daffy Duck doing a piano duel and getting into violence and 
eventually the fight ends in a draw. Fast and Furious rules. <laughs> Vin Diesel can't beat The Rock, and The Rock can't beat Vin Diesel. They stole that from Roger Rabbit. Um, they both get dragged off screen at the exact same time. Later, when uh, Valiant first gets to Toontown, through a series of cartoonish things happening to him, he's falling from a skyscraper without a parachute. And Mickey and Bugs float in, also base jumping next to him. And he argues with them until he gets a spare from Bugs, but it's a spare tire and it doesn't stop his fall at all. <laughs> what sent me during that scene was Mickey Mouse saying the line, You could get killed. <laughs> I don't know why, but huh? you could get killed! <laughs> Fucking sent me. <laughs> I know it's the the cartoon version that we grew up with, but I'm just seeing the current cartoon iteration of Mickey with, like, the thick black lines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that is 100% something that he would say. Oh, actually, yes. You're right. <laughs> um, it's actually funny you mentioned, like, the modern iteration. Because if you go on Disney Plus now, there is a series of Mickey Mouse cartoons that started in 2014, 2015? Something like that, yeah. Somewhere around then. Which is a very distinct style. And you can go all the way back to Steamboat Willie, and Mickey Mouse looks nothing like the current one, but it's still distinctly Mickey Mouse. Yeah, it's like an homage to Steamboat Willie style, but more... Yeah. Yeah. So, Warner cartoons had a similar thing. In the 40s, when Bugs Bunny was fighting Nazis, he had a distinct look about him. In the 80s, a lot of the cartoons that we grew up on, Bugs Bunny, the Chuck Space Jones era... Jam. Bug jo- uh, the Bug Jones, the Chuck Jones era, Bugs Bunny had a different look to him. It was still distinctly Bugs Bunny, but looked different. There was actually an issue with this, where since Chuck Jones was in charge at the time, when they made the movie, he wanted Bugs to look like his Bugs. But that wouldn't have been the accurate Bugs. That's not what they were going for, because it takes place in 47. Even Mickey Mouse looked like he looked in the 40s. Yeah. So they sent him a fake version with 80s bugs. Are you shitting me? He approved it, and then they just released the other one. <laughs> this is why Hollywood CEOs were a mistake. This is literally why we've never seen these two characters on screen again at the same time. It's why the movie Space Jam, because the idea was at the time, Space Jam was already in the works. Of course it was. They were going to have Mickey Mouse in Space Jam, and they decided, no, fuck that noise. We're going to make fun of Disney whenever we can in this movie instead. The thing is, his his decision was objectively wrong and bad. Chucks? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? get over yourself, bro. Like, I, I, if you want people to see your bugs in a feature movie, make a feature movie. The movie takes place in 1947. Why would he look like 80s bugs? Uh, the third example of the two on <laughs> Um, right at the end, Porky Pig does his That's All Folks bit. Yeah. But Tinkerbell one-ups him and does her little shake of the ass, poof of the wand, end of the movie. And again, frame for frame. And I think as tenuous as that relationship has proven to be, I love that they pulled it off of this movie. This movie really is a perfect storm of just everything needing to go right. Like, even down to the timing. Computer generation wasn't really a thing yet. Pixar was doing shorts barely at, in 1988. So they couldn't use computers to help out with this. It was all like hand animation. Yeah, Toy Story was like the first 
It was the first feature, but they had done a few shorts and I think commercials, Pixar, in the late 80s. Okay. But I think the first one was 87 or 88. So they were they were not even a blip on Disney's radar at this point. That technology Disney wouldn't utilize until, I think, Beauty and the Beast. So they had to do all this by hand. It's just a, like, and it, it comes out so, it comes out so much more lively and fluid. It comes out with love. It, it comes out with life because there's a human hand involved. There's a human hand in every frame. Like how painstaking it was to animate it. They knew to get it right. They had to get it right. And it's, it's why this movie still looks fucking gorgeous today. It's why animation nerds will spend six and a half hours on their own podcast talking about it. <laughs> without even mentioning the novel. Oh, they probably go into the details of the novel. What am, I, what am I saying? But it's a beloved movie for a reason. Yeah. Lots of reasons. But it's a perfect storm of everything coming together at the right time. Did you know they were, they've been trying to make sequels for a couple of years? I know there are sequels to the books. There are. Um, I was looking into that a little bit, but I couldn't get a lot of information on them. There are a total of two sequels. Uh, the second one is called Who Pupa Plunged Roger Rabbit, <laughs> and I don't remember the name of the third one. I believe uh, Gary Wolf, the author, loved the movie so much he based the sequels on the movie. That and, makes a lot of sense. And the he... original novel is now uh, canonically a dream that Jessica Rabbit had once. <laughs> Beautiful. I mean, obviously you can't do a sequel with Roger Rabbit because he's dead <laughs> in the novel. He never got dipped. Just hook up an air pump to his face and <laughs> cartoon was, him back to life. That was actually a difference between the novel and the book is that you can or the novel and the movie is that cartoons can die, mm. obviously. So they have also explored the idea of sequels for the movies. Mm-hmm. One script that was floating around was, I think, called Toon Troops or Troop Toon. And it was a prequel. Told the story of how uh, Roger Rabbit met Jessica and how they came to Hollywood. And also about he and Mickey fought the Nazis in World War II. <laughs> Spielberg dropped out after making Schindler's List. He was like, I can't satirize the Nazis. <sighs> so that never came to be. Yeah, I get it. And. Alternatively, fucking satirize the Nazis. Make them Nazis. buffoons. I think in, if you ask Spielberg in 1995, he it's too soon. I feel like now he might want to satirize some Nazis again. Yeah. Um, the other sequel... I think there's still an IMDb page for it, Who Framed Roger Rabbit 2. I know Bob Hoskins was down to do another one before he passed. Zemeckis relatively recently has said he's down to do another one, but he doesn't think Disney will greenlight it. I don't know what the sequel plot would be. I just know that there's a script and that it's apparently pretty good. But we still may see a Disney Plus Who Framed Roger Rabbit 2 Next to, you know, Hocus Pocus 2 and the live-action Dumbo. It would be interesting. Again, I don't know what the, the... Obviously, no one knows what the script is. No one in this podcast knows what the script is. But it would be fascinating if it was the cartoon's take on AI. Ooh, 
new tunes start showing up in Two Town, and they don't have the right number of fingers. And instead of acting surprised, they say, I am surprised. And they start to realize that they're computer-generated, mm-hmm. AI-generated. Yep. We need to start writing something. Um, we're going <laughs> to end this real quick so we can, <laughs> so we can get going. <laughs> Cody, before we go, would you recommend that people check out the book? Yes. It, it, it's a classic noir hard-boiled detective mystery um, with cartoons. It's, I don't want to say it's charming because that implies there's like a warmth or a coziness that doesn't exist in this, but it's very good. It, it's like the Maltese Falcon, except there's cartoons. Right on. I think I've made my views on the movie abundantly clear. It's a fucking classic. It's so good. It's delightfully funny. It's mind-blowing how they managed to get it made in general. Like, period. I don't want to say masterpiece, but it's close. It's very, very close. Until next time, then. We will be doing a movie. Slash book next time. Sure will. Just feeling. We haven't been completely divorced from current events. And for no particular reason, we figure let's touch on a story in which, say... A very wealthy guy decides to create a tourist destination for other incredibly wealthy guys. Maybe quarter million to attend. But decides to do some cost cutting. Save some money on, let's say, safety measures. Mm-hmm. Things to prevent people from meeting their demise of this tourist destination. And of course, to demonstrate the safety involves his own family. Oh yeah, gotta get your family in there. In fact, he'll even hop in there himself just to show how much he trusts his system. Next episode, Jurassic Park. (laughs) Until then, Cody, where can people find you if they so choose? They can find me at pretty special, P-R-I-T-T-Y-S-P-A-S-H. It's in the description. Well, it's in the description. (laughs) I know how to spell. Billy, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Letterboxd at Mr. Billy Beck. You can find the show on Twitter mm-hmm. at Soon Major Pod. Ooh, I'm and you can a brand. find our podcast <laughs> anywhere you find podcasts. Unless you're finding podcasts in a dumpster, in which case, probably not there. I like the probably. <laughs> probably not there. Maybe if you find my old laptop or something. (laughs) I don't know. Still never know how to end these things. I have a brand. Fuck off. (laughs) 